This morning, our text is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you have your Bibles or a Bible app, I invite you to turn to it. I will be actually reading out of the message. It's a paraphrase. I like to read the message sometimes when it's a, a story, because I think sometimes it makes it sound a little bit more conversational, and so that's what I'll be looking at. But when we look at the actual message, and I refer back to the text, then I'm actually going to be going back and looking at the English Standard version. Back in the 1990s, I walked into a bookstore. It was at Brown University, and I saw a book on the table. It was called Longitude, the true story of a lone genius who solved the greatest scientific problem of his time. I couldn't resist the title. Well, I'm pleased to know now that England has rated this as a country. They have a list of their greatest books. They say it's one of their, I think, 50 greatest nonfiction books ever written about England, and the scientist who gets referred to in it, that we're going to talk a little bit about, John Harrison, is considered one of the greatest scientific minds in the history of Britain. Then I read this little introduction. It said, anyone alive in the 18th century would have known the longitude problem was the thorniest scientific dilemma of the day and had been for centuries. Lacking the ability to measure their longitude, sailors throughout the great ages of exploration had literally been lost at sea as soon as they lost sight of land. And so what happened is you could know how far north and south you were, but you couldn't know how far east and west you were. And what would end up happening is somebody would say, we need to get to an island, but then they'd be like, we don't know if it's that way or that way. Now, that makes a big difference if it's 100 miles that way or 100 miles this way. And they said there's actually stories of ships that would go back and forth and people would die on the ship because they never got into the place that they were going. And so being lost at sea literally meant these ships were in places where they had no idea where they were. The quest for a solution occupied the 18th century. And then there was, and I won't tell you too much about the story, but there was a, a, a reward that went out. If you could solve the problem, you'd make mo- this immense amount of money. I think at that time it was like $5 million, and today... It would be a tremendous amount of money. And a guy named John Harrison in 1730, and that's what the story tells the story of, invents the chronometer, which is basically a watch. Today it'd be a stopwatch, or a a pocket watch. You could buy one for probably 20 bucks down at Best Buy. But at the time, this was an amazing thing because not only was it a watch or a clock that kept time, but it kept time on land and also at sea. So when they would go out into the ocean, it would still be accurate because everything else required stability and you don't have stability out on the the ocean. And so the invention of the chronometer literally changed everything because previously people were lost at sea, they were lost out in the wilderness, they didn't know where they were, and now they had their bearings. The reason I rethought about that is I thought about the first century and the birth of our Savior and the story we're looking at, and also today. We may not be lost at sea, but a lot of people might just as well be because they're lost floundering in life. They're out wondering what's going on, where are we, all kinds of voices. You can even hear the voices on the ship, can't you? Somebody going, we need to go this way. No, we need to go that way. I know, right, and No, I'm sure, and so let's take a vote, and 60% of the people vote this way, and 40% go this way, and the captain goes, well, that didn't solve anything. That's similar to what we have in our world. No matter how much we, on our own, without any bearing, try to figure out, we don't know where to go. 
And so as I think about our lives, I think we're much like the people of the 18th century before they had a way to know where they were. It asks me the question today, what centers us? What centers you in your life? How do you know where you are? How do you know what your core is so you can make your decisions and you can listen to all the different things that are out there, all the people who have opinions and all the things you're telling you what to do and what decision to make and how to interpret things? What do we do with all of that? Well, that's where I came to the story of Joseph. He's one of my favorite stories in telling the story of the birth of Jesus, and I think a lot of times he's sort of our forgotten hero. We talk about the angels, the shepherds. We talk about the magi who come later with their gifts. We, of course, tell the story of Mary and Elizabeth and all of that, but frequently we forget about this very righteous man, Joseph, who becomes honored to be the natural worldly father of our Savior. And as we hear his story, remember this. If he had not been faithful, if he had not obeyed, God would have just chosen someone else. Think of that. He's kind of unnecessary. He doesn't carry the Christ child. He's not even involved with the conception of the baby. He just gets to be the guy who has the privilege of raising this child. Now, I know that sometimes that must have been hard because all of us who have ever had kids know that children are always right and we're always wrong. Only in this case, the child was always right and he was always wrong. So he certainly had his challenges with that. But still, he has this privilege of being the one because of his faithfulness, because he has his bearings, because he knows who he is and he's centered on faith, he gets the privilege of being the one who gets to raise the baby Jesus he even gets to teach him his trade of carpentry. Listen to his story. The birth of Jesus took place this way. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. Before they came to the marriage bed, Joseph discovered she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit. But he didn't know that. Joseph chagrined, but noble, determined to take care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. While he was trying to figure a way out, he had a dream. God's angel spoke to him in the dream. And the angel said this, Joseph, son of David, don't hesitate to get married. Meg, Mary's pregnancy is spirit-conceived. God's Holy Spirit has made her pregnant. She will bring a son to birth, and when she does, you, Joseph, will name him Jesus, which means God saves, because he will save the people from their sins. This would bring the prophet's embryonic sermon to fulfillment. Watch for this. A virgin will get pregnant and bear a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which is Hebrew for God is with us. Then Joseph woke up from his dream. He did exactly what the angel commanded him in the dream. He married Mary, but he didn't consummate the marriage until the baby had been born. He named the baby Jesus. I suggest as we hear that story that Joseph was a man who knew his bearings because he was centered on his faith. He understood that his faith had to be the center of everything on how he lived his life. And it is only faith that can ultimately center us. Do you hear me? Because if it is not faith, we're all over the place. If it's just opinions or the opinion of the day, they change. If it's our emotions, our emotions certainly take us in every which direction. That's why in verse 18 of the text, we read, Before they came together, Mary was found to be with a child consider what Joseph was facing. He's engaged. He's excited. 
He's got this woman who he's like, look at my beautiful fiance. And then people start whispering and saying, yeah, beautiful fiance. Yeah, she's pregnant, buddy. Now, it may be that she said something to him. It may be that he noticed something. It may be that somebody else said something to him. But imagine the emotions he must have gone through at that time. Can't you just hear the people telling him to move on? Move on. Move on with your life. Obviously, she's not been faithful to you. Obviously, she doesn't really love you. Just like in our world and our lives today, when there is anything that comes along, if we don't know what centers us and we don't have a core, we're going to hear every single opinion on what to do and what direction to go with our lives. It's sort of, again, like life was before the chronometer. You can imagine everybody had an opinion on a ship. If the ship's captain came up and said, folks, we're lost, everybody knew exactly where they were. If you don't believe it, just ask them. They would have all told the captain, well, this is where we are. All the while, everybody's just shooting from the hip and having no idea what they're saying, but that's what human behavior does. So when you and I find ourselves in those places or our world finds itself in those places where we don't know where to turn, it doesn't mean that people don't have strong opinions because they do. Here's the key, though. Joseph didn't have to listen to everybody, and he knew that. He didn't try to make everybody happy. He was a man of faith who had Christ, had God at his center, eventually Christ at his center. And with God at the center, he already had a pretty good plan of how to navigate difficult situations. And that's why in verse 19, we're told that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, decides the first thing that he decides in his heart. I'm going to end this quietly, and I'm going to do everything I can to protect this woman so at least she's not embarrassed. She can move on with her family, but I'm not going to do something where I'm going to be this guy that, oh, how offended I am. I can't believe what this woman did. The word that's used to describe Joseph is the word just. It's a Greek word, dikaios. It's the same word that we use for justice and righteousness today. And so in today's world, we talk about an individual being righteous, and we talk about a society being just. It all means how we treat people, how we live with one another, what kind of person we are. And you see, with Joseph, he was always the kind of person who cared about others. It's interesting, the first occurrence that we have of this word actually comes from Homer's Odyssey. When Odysseus wakes up on a strange island and he asks a basic question, I don't know who these people are. Are they just and hospitable and care for others, he asks, or are they cruel and wild? Because Odysseus knows that if these are just people, if these are people who in their heart care about others, he's going to be okay. But if they're people who just are self-absorbed and don't think about anybody else, his life could be over at that point. The Bible tells us that Joseph was already a just man. He was a righteous man. He was a person who thought of others. His faith was at his center, so he didn't care what everybody else said. He was going to live in such a way that even if you offended him, even if you did something wrong, he was a person who was forgiving. He was a person who was understanding. He was a person who was compassionate. That's what our faith does for us, folks. If we have Christ in the center of our lives, and we find ourselves unforgiving towards others, we better make the question to ourselves, do I really have Christ at the center of my life? Hear me loud and clear? That's what the Bible teaches. That's why I always call it the scariest verse of the Bible. 
Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's what Jesus said, not me. Because when we become like Joseph and we allow ourselves to be centered in our faith, we start realizing that God cleanses us and has forgiven us and undone so much for us, and all we can do is be hospitable and kind towards others. So even when we see people acting like, sorry, knuckleheads, we still care about them. We still pray for them. And that's exactly what you find with this guy, Joseph. Years ago, I had graduated from high school, and my parents had moved away. They were a couple hundred miles away, and it was an evening where I had been in Fargo, and I was going to take my car, and I was going to go drive to go stay at somebody's house, and they were about a mile, about an hour, hour and a half out of Fargo, and I get about 15 minutes down the road. I'm on Highway 29, and my car was an old Ford Fairlane, just stopped. I discovered later it was the alternator, and you can't run a car with a bad alternator in the middle of the night when you put your lights on, because what it does is it kills the battery, and the whole thing goes dead, and the car stopped at the side of the road. Now, remember, this is the 1970s. I have no cell phone. I'm sitting by the side of the road. It's dark outside, and along comes a police officer, comes behind, turns the lights on. I get so excited. I get out of my car. I run up to the car. Police officer yells at me, tells me to get back in the car. I learned something that day. You don't go running up to a police car telling them I'm glad you're here to rescue me. But again, this is still a North Dakota 1970s story, so what ends up happening, the policeman finally comes up, he talks to me, he says, what's going on? I explain to him, and he goes, get in the back of my cruiser and I'll drive you to Fargo. So I get in the back of the cruiser, he drives me to Fargo, we go to a gas station, he drives me at a gas station, and there I am, it's now about eh, 10 o'clock at night, I'm like, what am I going to do now? Well, there is a family that we know, the Presslers, and I know that they are righteous people. I know they're just people. I know they're compassionate people. You see, the doctor and Mrs. Pressler had been missionaries to India, and we had known them as a family, and so I thought I will call them. Now, let me tell you something about the Presslers. They were the first couple I learned that completely disagreed with each other politically. I mean, this couple could argue every single thing, and they saw the world from completely different perspectives. However, they had Jesus on the inside. Didn't matter what their perspectives were. They were loving and compassionate people. And so I called them on the phone. They said, of course. And so Dr. Pressler comes and gets me, and I went and spent a wonderful night at their home. They had more wool blankets. They loaded wool blankets on my bed. So I was so hot that night, I was taking all the wool blankets off. But that's a whole other story. Point is, when we know somebody has or we have Christ as our center, that's how we treat people, folks. We're compassionate. We're just. We're righteous. And so we start being able to navigate the seas of life because we're out in the middle of the ocean watching everybody treat everybody awful, and we know we're not going to live that way because Christ is centering us. But here's the other thing. When we do that, when we live that way, we still got to make decisions. I can't just say, sermon over, just go and love and be kind to everybody, because you come back and you say, but we still got decisions to make here, folks. There's still things that we've got to deal with in our life, and real things, and Joseph still had a real situation. It wasn't just about being kind and loving. He still had to make a decision on, ultimately, what do I do in this relationship issue that I have, do I really break it off? Do I stick with her? And here's the key. The Holy Spirit guides us when faith is at our center. Hear that loud and clear. When we keep Christ in the center of our lives, 
God will always have a way to break through and help us come to that decision. Maybe not in our time. Maybe not as soon as you and I want to know. But when we keep Christ in the center of our lives and keep Christ in our heart and live by faith and allow that to center us, the Holy Spirit's always going to break through and we're always going to get the answer that we need. And we're going to be able to make that decision and feel good about it and move forward, even if everybody else disagrees with us. Because remember, we're not trying to people please here. Yes, this guy, Joseph, was a good guy. We saw how righteous and just he was. Joseph talked to others and got their perspective. He thought about it. He prayed. He made his best decision. He heard people who told him things like, stone the woman. Come on, this is the first century. She doesn't deserve to live anyhow. Read your Bibles. That's what they did in the first century. But Joseph, in verse 20, as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see, even as we are living our lives being loving and compassionate and seeking to have Christ in the center of our lives, we can still make a decision and go a particular direction, but God will break through and hit us over the head and make us realize what we're doing wrong. You hear me? God will still break through in our lives and let us see when we're off course. And it could be a conversation with someone where we're having it and we're praying about it and we're like, okay, I finally get what I should do. It may be we call somebody up on the phone and we say, I'm really struggling with the decision. It may be like Joseph, we go to bed at night and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and we wake up in the morning and we go, I get it. I finally see the direction I need to go. But the problem with us is we need to also put ourselves in the place that Joseph was. The reason that Joseph was centered on his faith is because he was a godly man and he was putting godly thoughts into his life. He was a person who knew the scriptures. He was filled his mind with the right things. I look at our world today and people go, I don't know what decision to make. I go, well, maybe if we would like quit filling ourselves with all the garbage of our world, maybe we'd have an easier time figuring out what decisions we need to make. Now, I'm looking around the congregation. We do have some younger people here because most of the kids we send out to Sunday school, but we have some people who maybe don't remember this. But I guarantee an awful lot of us did because, sorry, we're all like at least over 40. I remember my first computer. Anybody else remember their first computer? I was so excited. I put it on my desk. It was a little IBM, had floppy disks. Folks, floppy disks were floppy. You could move them. Okay, later they had those little hard disks and they called them floppy disks. Those were not floppy. These were floppy disks. And I stuck the little floppy disk in and that would boot up the computer and I'd stick the second floppy disk in and that had the information that we would save on and my computer would come to life and I could do stuff with it. We er learned early on in the computer age, gigo, garbage in, garbage out. If you put a bunch of nonsense into your computer, you're not gonna get your computer to do anything. It's going to just give you a bunch of nonsense out. I realized back in the 1980s when I had my first little IBM computer sitting on my desk, and I realize it today, that that's the same thing that happens with the Holy Spirit in our lives. If we just keep filling ourselves with garbage, and then we wonder, how come God's not guiding my life? Well, why am I spending my life filling my mind and my thoughts and everything with garbage? Joseph didn't do that. He was God-centered. He prayed. 
He understood the scriptures. He knew what the prophets had taught. He understood how to make godly decisions, but he also gave room for the Holy Spirit to work in his life so that when he has a dream, and I'm sorry, folks, we all go to bed and we all dream, and we can have the exact same experience that Joseph had. He wakes up in the morning, and now he knows with confidence what to do because he had something that centered him. As much as the chronometer was important, as much as it was important to have longitude, there was still one thing that needed to be established even after Harrison created the, la- the, the chronometer. Because if you don't have a centering point, you still can't figure out where you are in the ocean. You still have to have something that centers you. And therefore, Greenwich Mean Time was invented. We call it GMT zero. It's the prime meridian. It still exists today. It's the meridian that goes right through Greenwich, England, and the Royal Observatory. Because how you set your clock according to that point allowed you to know when you were west or east of there how, according to sunrise and sunset, what time it was based on using the same time how things are different where you are now compared to Greenwich Mean Time. It's a very simple concept. If you set something from a certain point and you go way out west, I can call my son up on the phone, and I can say, the sun is set here. And he goes, well, Dad, the sun is still shining here. But as long as you have a fixed point you start from, you can figure out how far you are east and west. And thus, the scientific dilemma was solved. The same thing is true in our life. If we have that centering point, if we put Christ at the center, if we understand that we live by faith and that becomes our center, God can help us and break through in our life and tell us where we are and the Holy Spirit can work. Do you hear us loud and clear here? If we don't have that centering point, if we're just all over the place, where's the room for the Holy Spirit to guide us on anything? No matter what we hear, we're just kind of not really sure what we're hearing anyhow and how it relates. That's why the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 12. Stop being conformed to the world. That was written 2,000 years ago. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may test and discern what's the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If we're just comparing ourselves to everyone else and saying, well, I'm better than the average Joe walking around there, that's not how God works in our lives. We're not going to be perfect. We'll never be perfect, but we do have a perfect Savior We're never going to be perfect, but we can always understand God's word and be filling our minds with God's word. We can always be listening to then what the Holy Spirit says to us, and now we can even discern whether this is the voice of God or something else. Joseph wakes up from his dream, and everything he was told in that dream was consistent with what he already understood as a godly man. Give somebody a break. Try to put yourself in a position of being understanding with someone else. Trust that God can do something that you can't even imagine. Every single thing that Mary said to him now made sense to him because in a dream, he's like, you know, of course, God can, God can do more than what I can understand. God can break through and do something miraculous, and I don't care what anybody else says. What I'm going to do is I'm going to trust God. And that's why the last thing we learn about being centered in our life if we look at the story of this guy, Joseph, is with faith at our center, we have one last thing. 
we learn to obey. We learn to obey God. And this often is where we fail as Christians. We learn it. We talk about it. We pray about it. But then we go out and we do our own thing. We know what we should do. And God tells us how to live. And we know that I really should forgive that person for that. But I think I'll just nurture my grudge a little bit longer. Or we know that we should trust in this situation, but we decide not to, and we go and we meddle and we interfere and we make matters worse. Amen? We do it all the time. We call it taking our will back. And so God says to us, leave that alone. And we talk to our friends, and they say, leave that alone. And we go talk to our pastor, and he says, leave that alone. And we go, okay, the Holy Spirit's told me to leave that alone, but you know, if I just would talk to this person and just say this one, I probably could get it all figured out. And it all blows up in our face. And what Joseph learns is what we need to learn. It's not just enough to have faith at the center and know how God wants us to live. We also need to obey. I do a lot of work in recovery, and people certainly hear about it enough here, but I'll tell you one more thing. There's an expression I heard one time called, you can have a head full of AA and a belly full of beer, and it won't do you any good. Because we still got to make the right choices. We can sit at every meeting and have everything explained. You can be the expert on what it means to be in recovery. But if you don't put it into practice, it doesn't do any good. That's how our faith is, folks. If we don't obey, if we don't listen to the voice of God and do the right things, we still find ourselves floundering out on the ocean. So verses 24 and 25, we're told, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to her son, and he called his name Jesus. Yes, Joseph obeyed and stayed engaged to Mary. And right there we go, what a miracle is that? Can you imagine the conversations he had with his family? I don't care what you say. I know it's okay, and I'm moving forward. But Joseph, what are the neighbors going to say? I don't care what the neighbors are going to say. I'm obeying God, and I'm going to do what I know is the right thing. But then tucked in that text is something else that's really interesting. Not only did he obey, not only did he continue to stick with Mary, but the text says very clearly, the same as we saw with Zechariah, that in the first century, this was a patriarchal society and men had certain things that they were allowed to do or were given the responsibility to do, and women had no say over it. Different world than we live in today. And one of those was naming the child. And Joseph said, I'm naming the baby Jesus. And we go, well, of course, we all know what Jesus is. He's the savior of the world. Not in the first century. The first century, Joseph chooses this name. Now you're sitting there going, why did he chose that name, Pastor Stan? I'm so glad you asked because that makes my sermon go on a little bit longer. <laughs> the reason he chose that name is because the angel had told him, and Moses in the Old Testament was a great hero. Think of him as the George Washington of the people of Israel. And he leads the children of Israel out through the desert, and they get right to the promised land, and they're right there at the Jordan River, and God says, enough, you're done. Joshua is going to take them in and conquer. And so Joshua becomes a conquering hero. Joshua becomes the one who saves the people, 
who brings them into the land. And so the angel said to Joseph, you're not just going to have a child. You're not just not going to be embarrassed by it. You're going to make a public proclamation that anybody's going to hear. Oh, you think I'm embarrassed by this child? You got to be kidding. I'm naming him the Savior. I'm naming him after one of our great heroes. God saves and look at this child. You see, when we live by faith and when we let Christ be our center and when we make the right decisions, we're not embarrassed by it. We proclaim it. This is who I am and this is how I live. We're loving and kind and caring, but that's what we discover with, Joshua, or with Joseph. Go back to our chronometer. It did people no good if they didn't follow it. You can be sitting on the middle of the ocean and know where you are, but if you start second-guessing the chronometer, you might as well not have it. So the ship captain gets up in the morning and he looks at the chronometer and he goes, oh... We thought we were at this point, but we're really at this point, and everybody on the ship says, oh, no, 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 Captain, your chronometer must be wrong. And at that point, the chronometer is sitting there, telling them the time. The ship's captain comes up with the calculations, and he goes, I am going to obey what I'm seeing in front of me. If you obey, it does you some good. If you don't obey, you're whistling in the dark again. That's how our lives are in Christ. We're invited to make Christ the center. We're invited to live for God. We're invited to have the greatest thing that we can have in our life, the understanding that God so loves us that he gave us his son and the Holy Spirit will work in us. But if we're not willing to be obedient, it does us no good. Now, in my life, I am the most flawed, imperfect person you can find. If you don't believe it, Go ask my wife. And in our life, we have these little things we call arguments or disagreements. Or sometimes I call them fights. And she goes, well, no, they're not really fights. They're just disagreements. I go, honey, sometimes when we're upset with each other, I'm sorry, they're fights. But we also both know that Christ is the center of each other's life. And one time, I was sitting over here at the church, and I'd had an argument with Regina, and I was 100% wrong. And I, and I was 100% wrong. I was totally wrong. And the fight had gone on for a while. And I finally sat there and I thought, you know, I prayed. I was like, I just need to walk in and I need to apologize. I walk across the parking lot. I walk into the kitchen and I said, honey, I'm 100% wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And she looks at me and she says, I knew you were going to say that. I said, how did you know I was going to say that? She said, because I have been married to you long enough. I know that you're a person of faith. I know you're a forgiving person. I know you're a person who eventually God will let you see when you've done something wrong, but I've timed it. It always happens within, and she gave me the number of hours. And she said, you just got to the limit, so I knew you were going to walk in right now and say that to me. I am not perfect. My wife is not perfect. We're imperfect people like everyone else. But we seek to have Christ at our center. And when we do, the Holy Spirit will work in our lives. And if we get to know somebody else well enough, you'll even discover how long it takes for the Holy Spirit to talk to them. But the point is we still have to obey. The point of Joseph is, yes, the guy is in a world in which everybody's drifting. And yes, we're in a world where everybody's drifting. 
And yes, he learns to have faith at the center, and he learns to be loving and compassionate, and we're invited to do the same. And he discovers when he does that God breaks through and helps him with his most difficult decisions. But folks, let's remember, we still have to obey. For those moments in our life when God tells us to do something, to forgive, to be understanding, to reach out to a neighbor, to do the difficult things in our lives, and we take our will back and we decide we're just going to do it our own way. We're not living the way that God wants us to live. For the story of Christmas for us this week is to remember that we don't have to be out on a middle of an ocean wondering where we are. God gave us better than a chronometer. God gave us a savior, a person who showed us how to live, a person who gave everything for you and for me to grant our forgiveness and to guide us when the life seems difficult and we don't know where to turn. Our responsibility is putting ourselves in the place where we hear, we listen, we live by faith, and we obey. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, help us to find our place in the story of Joseph. Help us to realize that it was only because of his obedience that you were able to use him in this amazing way. Had he known that chosen to obey, you're God. There are others that you could have put in that place. And so often, that's our story. There's stuff you want us to do and life you want us to live and a way in which you want us to go forward. And it doesn't mean that your will won't happen in this world or good won't go forth or someone won't hear the gospel, but it does mean that we choose to put ourselves out of the place where you want to use us. Help us to learn to be obedient to you and to understand the blessing of having our faith in Christ center all that we do. And help us this week as we prepare for Christmas to realize that the birth of that child into this world manifestly showing us that you love us unconditionally. The child who grew up to be our Savior gives us the opportunity in our lives to not only know that we're beloved and cared for, but we can be forgiven as we trust in you and let your Holy Spirit guide us. In Christ's name we pray.